Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation and eventually to get a job. And today I am joined with uh, Professor Elena Schneider, who uh, teaches uh, history here at Berkeley and studies Latin American and the uh, Latin America and the Atlantic world. And we will be talking about her recent really awesome book, The Occupation of Havana. And you can find her at, at, at Elena Schneid. Yes, that's it. <laughs> um, on Twitter. Uh, so if you want to if you want to hear more from her, uh, 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 check out at Elena Schneid. Uh, so let's uh, I, I, I brought you on the show. I studied British history um, and uh, I listened to you give a talk about this book and I learned something that I just had never, ever, ever given any thought to. And, and that was the, something that happened during the Seven Years War. During the Seven Years' War, uh, the British occupied Havana, the capital of, of, of Cuba, and I'd never heard of this before. <laughs> like, there's so many little things that you have to learn if, as an 18th century historian, and I was just shocked that this huge event uh, had gone without my knowing about it. Um, so I want to talk about that, but first, could you, should, let's, let's just get people up to speed. Could you tell me a little bit about what the Seven Years' War is. I'm going to pretend this is for my listeners, but I've kind of... <laughs> no, this is. these are all very fair questions. Um, this, I know one thing about the Seven Years' War. What is that? Didn't take seven years. It did not. It took more than seven years. Um, it's really... Uh, we're moving into the kind of dustier, early 18th century imperial history with these wars for empire that first began to go global. The Seven Years' War was the first global war. Um, that just don't really stick in our minds or maybe aren't taught that well mm. in our education and, and secondary school or in the university. So the Seven Years' War, if you were educated in the United States, you might have been it might have been described to you as the French and Indian War. And it began, it was a conflict between France and Britain primarily, though it spread. And it began in Indian country uh, in along the Mississippi River, um, and went global and involved battles in India. Uh, French, uh, France and Britain initially um, started the conflict and they took it global. There was fighting in continental Europe, uh, but also the Spanish joined in the later stages of the war, about seven years in. Okay. So, and they joined on the side of France. Okay. I mean, I just want to like, like just set the scene because this is something that's striking. Mm -hmm. So it's the 18th century. People are still getting around in, in ships that mm -hmm. run by wind. It takes three months to get, you know, on a, on a good day to get, to get a message from, from Boston to London, right? Yeah. Like distance is really, really big. And here we have what seems like it should be a really small conflict in, in, yeah. in, in America that turns into, into wars in, in North America, in Europe and in India. That yeah. is, that's amazing. And I knew about England and France, but Spain gets in. Yeah, this is through the family tie between the French and Spanish monarchy at, at the time, the yeah. Bourbon family tie. And Spain has been warring with Britain off and off, off and on, uh, hot and cold wars 
repeatedly in cycles of warfare throughout the 18th century, even more obscure wars. The War of Jenkins' the Ear. War of Jenkins. <laughs> the, when I was preparing for my orals, it was one of those horrifying things. I was I was hoping that nobody would ask me about the War of Jenkins' Ear. <laughs> we, those of us that work, in it, uh, work on it laugh to ourselves that this is one of the most alarming and obscure wars <laughs> that people talk about. In Jenkins' Ear, Jenkins was accused of piracy uh, and captured by a Spanish privateer, and his his ear was lopped off. <laughs> and he supposedly, though this is probably apocryphal, brandished his lopped off ear in front of Parliament, calling for a war against Spanish aggressions. But basically, you can think of all of these wars as uh, imperial wars of expansion, fighting over both territory and access to trade markets, yeah. and a kind of cyclone of building wars, even the War of Spanish Succession, another obscure war of the late uh, 17th and early 18th century, that fed into the War of Jenkins' Ear, fed into the War of Austrian Succession. These are all wars you've never heard about, into the Seven Years' War. Yeah, and so we have this, uh, you, you brought something up about why these wars are happening. You have a new or a more powerful form of, of, of imperial control that's happening, right? Mm-hmm. You have you have uh, uh, these European states that are being able to bring to bear even greater uh, navies and like even greater armies onto particular places in the world to exert their pressure, and they're exerting their pressure not, you know, because they want to pursue a particular ideology, but because they want stuff. Mm-hmm. They want tobacco and sugar and, mm-hmm. and money and mm-hmm. and other humans. Mm-hmm. Right? No, and I think it's important. You can't understand the Seven Years' War without understanding the escalating imperial competition and these bouts of warfare that uh, broke out beforehand because they they provide a learning curve. And this yeah. is the story by which the British Navy was able to fight wars in India and claim territories controlled by the French uh, to fight, um, to try and take over French imperial space. Um, and that you have to think of these earlier wars as dress rehearsal, as learning curve, as practice mm-hmm. that made the Seven Years' War and the kind of scale of operations that were launched such a leap forward. Yeah. Now, now, look, as we've been talking about this, I just I have something just hanging out in the back of my mind as a modern person. What's at stake in this? Like, what? Yeah. Why does it matter for us to talk about the Seven Years' War like like today? Like, does is it just an example of of, of people in wigs firing cannons <laughs> at each other? What, why does it matter? There were people in wigs firing cannons. Yeah. <laughs> that is definitely part of it. It's true. It's I a mean, true thing. That I felt, uh, as you know from the book, that I, to tell this story, I go back to the uh, Protestant Reformation. It's Protestants versus Catholics. Yeah. And it's monarchs uh, fighting uh, over wealth, mm. uh, over territory, both within continental Europe and globally. Uh, ongoing rivalry that's sort of escalating, and that drove European, early modern European expansion. Um, so that's what's at stake. Uh, the conflict in North America, the Native initiated, Native American initiated conflict in North America, spirals and escalates into an excuse for these monarchies to go to war against each other. And um, there are commercial classes, as you know, and certainly in England, who are very pro-war at this time because war means conquest. Yeah. And it's a time of warfare uh, similar but also different from our own in which there's an idea that you capture the enemy's territory both in order to annex it potentially but also to have it 
at the the negotiating table at the end of the war oh. and and swap, you oh. know, because we we claim Gibraltar and we'll give it back if you do this or Tangier. Um, that's a part of warfare at this time, and that's in some way why the incident that I wrote about in the book about the British capturing Havana was sort of overlooked yeah. because it was seen as, oh, just a late occurring episode in this war that spiraled out globally. That was just something only to be taken into account when you understand the peace treaty at the end. Yeah. And all of the machinations in the many, in the many you know, I argue over a century of British machinations and attempts to take Havana get sort of discounted and it's seen as kind of an afterthought to the war. Yeah, I just like like when when me as a grad student, when I'm studying for my orals or studying mm-hmm. a period of time like this, I might skip to the end <laughs> and see what sort of territories are exchanged. Yeah. And, you know, spoiler alert, yeah. even though the British occupied Havana, Havana remained in the Spanish Empire. Yeah. Well, people remained in the Spanish Empire. So let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's zoom in a little bit and, and, yeah. and talk a little bit about Cuba. Tell me... Uh, I'm going to admit my naivete. I don't know anything about Cuban history. I know, you know, the uh, uh, Che Guevara T-shirts. Yeah. And I'm, and I know there tobacco. I know there's there's cigars. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's about it. Can you tell me a little bit about where Cuba was in the 18th century? Why was it important? Why was it yeah. something that people were fighting over? Well, that question was really what drove my selection of this topic and the journey that resulted in this book. When I first learned, like you, I had no idea that the British had invaded and occupied Havana. And to me, from what I knew of Cuban history, this seems surprising because 18th century Cuba was normally described as a sort of backwater. Mm. It was the time before the time. And the great interest in Cuban history is really in 19th century, which was the pinnacle of sugar plantation slavery. Yeah the decades of struggle trying to win their independence from Spain, Teddy Roosevelt, the Rough Riders, the Spanish-American Cuban War, and then, of course, 20th century Cuban history, the Cuban Revolution. I mean, that is where the vast majority of the work on Cuba has has alighted yeah. for good reason. And that's really the interest that other those that are not Cuba specialists or Cuban nationals have had in Cuban history. It's 19th and 20th century. So I looked at this episode and thought, what on earth was going on in 18th century Cuba that the British would go to such lengths um, to, to, to try to capture it? Yeah. And, you know, I did know that the British had amassed more people to lay siege to Havana than lived in any North American city at the what? time. Yeah, it's stunning, That's, really. I, yeah. So, like, if you ask me why did why did the British invade Cuba, I would just yeah. say, well, they— they really liked to invade places. <laughs> yeah, in 18th century. It was it was a hobby of theirs. But yeah, but, but that makes it really striking. Why on earth more yeah. people, more British people, participated in this in, in, in the capture of Havana than lived in any North American city at the time? That yeah. is, and just imagine how many trees were needed for all of those boats. Yeah, like imagine how many pigs needed to be slaughtered for the salt pork. Yeah, that yeah. was that's huge. That is that is striking. I think of it as a floating city. It was uh, 230 ships, and when you think about you have your about th- you have your warships, you're about 30 warships, and then you have all the transport vessels for the sailors and soldiers. You yeah. have hospital ships, you have ships carrying supplies, you have ships carrying enslaved Africans who've been, who've been raised for the siege, free black soldiers who've been raised for the siege, and people the people who that floating city that descended on Havana and this surprise attack, 
uh, included people from all over Europe and Britain, Ireland, uh, North America, several different colonies of British North America, Rhode Island, South yeah. Carolina, New Jersey, New York, and the Lesser Antilles, so Martinique, Antigua, St. Kitts, uh, Curaçao even. So you do have to think of it as this kind of uh, small uh, sort of encapsulation of people from all over the Atlantic world. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned something here, the Atlantic mm -hmm. world. And yeah. I want to, so British historians often talk about uh, 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 the Navy as the wooden world. Yeah. Um, and my little, my little fact about that is that uh, at any given time, um, if you counted the number of, of British people who were on board ship, uh -huh. uh, they would constitute the second biggest city in the country. Huh. Um, I haven't so, heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's this wooden world that, that's that, that's massive, that has a really massive amount of people, and they're all sailing through the Atlantic. And I loved your description of it just there. Like, there is a a, a, a culture, there's a, there's a world. And I'm going to ask you, like, a non-historical question. Yeah. Like, I could kind of smell the ship as you were yeah. describing it. So if we like, and I real like my, 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 I really wanted to be able to be transported back in time to yeah. go there. What do you think it would be like to be there? Like what, what, how would you think we, we, we might experience that, that, that wooden Atlantic world? Yeah. All those people on all those boats, what might strike us as different? I know this is not a question yeah. that we're, 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 we're qualified to answer, but. No, I mean, that's what historians do. We take the facts that we can draw from bleed out of archives and then we t bring our imagination to them mm. and we try to bring them to life. So, I mean, I think I tend to imagine this world from the perspective of a woman or the people of African descent that I write about. Yeah. So I think of it as a nasty hierarchical <laughs> world. Yeah. Um, and I think of the labor discipline of the ship. Mm. Uh, I think of those that are below decks and have limited time coming above deck. Um, and then also, I mean, a major story of the siege is disease. The, yeah. One of the reasons the British bring so many people for this attack is that they know yellow fever is going to be a major factor. And in total, 10,000 people died during the siege of Havana, uh, many of them from yellow fever. Uh, so you think about all the diseases that strike people at sea, scurvy, the diseases of malnutrition. Yeah. And then the diseases of yellow fever that those really strike people when they come on land and because it's a mosquito-borne disease. Oh, um, so I think of it as a nasty place. Actually, there's a romance of the seas and, a, and of adventure, but I also just think of it as a dangerous, nasty place. Yeah, whippings and tar. Yeah. And I, I I think about what it must feel like to to be constantly surrounded by so much salt water. Yeah, like it must dry you out. You must like get sick and want want to want to see land and, and oh and yeah, and the blistering drink. Caribbean heat. Yeah, 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 yeah. So well, so this is this this makes it even more puzzling. So mm -hmm. somebody in in Whitehall mm -hmm. decided that they needed to get Havana, and so they just they and they they knew enough to think we're gonna lose a lot of people. Yeah, and so they threw a lot of people yeah. at this island. Um, tell me a little bit about what 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 happened, or 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 yeah, let's 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 move on to the the siege. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is there is this 
just as you mentioned, there's this calculus at work at work of how many lives is Havana worth? And those that play in the siege know very much that yellow fever is going to be a factor. And they know that from these prior wars I was talking about, the yeah. British had had tried to take Cartagena and failed. And then they tried to take, ironically, Guantanamo, Cuba. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it just makes me laugh. Guantanamo has been uh, in the mix for quite some time. It's yeah. a good bay. Uh, it's good, it has good naval utility, but anyway, back to the, you know, what happened when that floating city de descended on Havana, um, over the centuries of plotting against Havana, the British had come up with a pretty good, uh, way to attack this city. This is, uh, arguably Spain's best fortified port in the Americas. The Spanish, because they had weathered attacks from the British over time, had sent um, Italian architects, military architects who built castles throughout Italy to build these massive Spanish forts yeah. that guard the bays of the Spanish Caribbean, Puerto Rico, Cartagena, uh, and Havana. So Havana has this whole complex of forts guarding the entrance to the bay. And the British knew a frontal and assault. These are big, right? They're like, huge. How, how tall are they? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, but like yeah. a couple stories, right? Yeah, like, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like big. I imagine big stone things with. They look like castles. Yeah. yeah, and the, yeah. in the Havana's main fort, the Moro Castle, as yeah. it was called, had twelve cannons pointing out. Uh, to see, and the, the Spanish called them the apostles. So you see <laughs> the kind of the the way religion factors into this, yeah. but. Um, so the British had realized that... Well, and how they thought of it as impregnable. Like, yeah. if, you, if you have a fort that's called the castle, <laughs> yeah. that's defended by the 12 apostles, apostles. <laughs> and cannons are cool things. Like, they're big, they're heavy, they make loud noises, use them during celebrations. Like, yeah. you, you know, you might... During during a, uh, some sort of a, a, a religious thing, you might you might fire them off. Wow, ah, those are the apostles. They're yeah. protecting us. yeah. But the British knew all this, and they planned. Yeah, so they planned to do a, a side attack. Yeah, and this was what was so clever, and also pointed to their learning curve. They decided to do what we would call uh, amphibious warfare, a sort of joint naval and um, and army attack. So they landed on both sides of Havana, over by Havana's river and main water supply to the west and also over to the east by another major river, they landed thousands of troops. And then the idea was to cut around behind the city yeah. and cut off its uh, water supply. They turned the river that led into the aqueduct into what? the walled city of Havana. They turned, they turned. This, yeah. was, wait, wait, this was part of their plan. They were like, we're yeah. gonna go around back and we're gonna divert the river. Yeah. This is siege warfare. This is centuries of siege warfare. You got to go for the water supply. Yeah. And they also came around the other side and seized the city of Guanabacoa, uh, which is uh, the largest city on Havana's flank. And then they very quickly moved overland and started building batteries. They started taking their own cannons off of the ships and bringing them to shore, building batteries to protect them and started firing them at the uh, Moro Castle. Oh, and, wow. and even more cleverly, this was probably the worst error that the Spanish made. But I talked about the massive fortress of the Moro Castle right at the entrance to Havana's Bay. Next to it, on the heights overlooking the city of Havana, was another site uh, where the Spanish had planned for some time to reinforce 
the heights of here with uh, walls and with another fortress. The new governor of Havana, who'd arrived recently, had been given strict orders from Madrid. You need to build better fortifications on these heights. The, the, Span- the British knew this. They knew they hadn't been built yet. And immediately they seized the top of that hill right next to the Moro Castle and looking down over Havana. And they started setting up cannons there to fire both into the city, which is across the bay, and into the Moro Castle. And then it just became just weeks of cannon fire back and forth. The British warships also shot at uh, the city of Havana. And then you had soldiers making assaults on Havana's flank, trying to cut off supply lines where more troops came from and where food came from, from the interior. And you just settled down for six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah, six weeks. This is siege warfare. So the Spanish know that they have this just stunning force amassed against them. They do have soldiers and sailors. They do have militias and militias of African descent, who I talk a lot about in the book. Uh, they do they do manage to get support and food from the rest of the islands, um, but they are planning on trying to just hold the British off, and they're hoping that yellow fever will begin to strike the attackers. Yeah. The attackers know there's a ticking clock. They have only so many people, and it's the rainy season. That's when the mosquitoes hatch that car- carry yellow fever. Um, so they know they need to work as quickly as they can, and the Spanish are trying to stall if they can just stall long enough. So, yeah. so, so both we have both sides mm-hmm. arranged here, and they're both trying to wear down the other one's biological defenses. Mm-hmm. You have the British yeah. who, are, who are keep who are trying to keep out the fresh water and the food, mm-hmm. and also being threatening enough, basically saying any ships that come in here are going to get sunk. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Spanish, uh, the, 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 should I call them the Spanish, the Cubans? The yeah, Cubans, you just call them the Spanish. The side. Spanish, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, who are basically just waiting and hoping, hoping that the bad air of the summer will mm-hmm. get, will get the, the, mm-hmm. the British. Um, so I want to I jump to uh, 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 what, happened, what happens when the British take Havana. But I, I also, there's something that's important here that I didn't realize at all that I, that, 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 you, you talk about, um, which is, you're talking about how the British know about Havana mm-hmm. and how they have contacts there. And you said earlier that usually our, our view of, 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 of Cuba in the 18th century is that it doesn't really matter as much. Mm-hmm. How did they know what yeah. was going on there? Like, how do they have experience with it? How do they know that the that that there was this good hill that they were supposed yeah. to fortify and they didn't? But, yeah. Well, yeah. That's a great question. And that's, Part of what was the most fun part of my research is that I got to read a lot of spying reports about Havana, yeah. uh, but that were located in Jamaican or British archives. And there's just a, a huge volume of them because the British were in and out of Havana uh, quite busily, particularly from when they took over Jamaica from the Spanish in the mid 17th century. But they were in and out of Havana because it was a place where they smuggled people and goods. Yeah. And the British were the dominant slave traders of the century. And the Spanish in uh, Havana had a very high demand for enslaved Africans. And the British were the ones who provided them with them. So when we talk about the British, we're not talking about like state functionaries necessarily. We're talking about merchants. Mm-hmm. Oh, so 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 there was mm-hmm. lots of on the ground knowledge because they're like part of the British Empire was smuggling mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. into into Havana. 
Mm-hmm. And some of the, I mean, the attack that that wooden world that wooden world of the, ex- the British expedition that attacked yeah. Havana. They brought with them detailed descriptions of Havana, of the fortifications, of the exact measurements of the Moro Castle, written out by merchants and slave traders who'd been in and out of Havana, and had a deep interest in acquiring Havana as a market and potentially the island. Um, so it's a, it's a, there are a lot of, you have to disaggregate what you mean by the British. There are the people in Whitehall deciding to green light the expedition. There are merchants, there are conscripted sailors and soldiers that are not sure how they feel about this and what their odds of survival are. (laughs) You have a lot, you have enslaved Africans who've been volunteered by their owners who are getting paid for their services to help the British campaign. You have a lot of different constituencies, but merchants and merchants demand for more markets and for access to Cuba is a big part of this story. Yeah, but I, I just want to highlight mm-hmm. that, that what you're showing here is that this wasn't a foreign world. Mm-hmm. This wasn't like the British were stepping out, out you know, stepping off the, the, the shores of Cornwall and just like, you know, yeah. busting into some place where ne- they'd never been. They were deep contacts on both sides. Yeah. And those contacts were mostly about dealing with people yeah the slave trade yeah there, there are british um slave trading factors who had the official these were not smugglers but they had the official permission of the spanish crown to sell a certain amount of enslaved people in havana every year they actually owned property in havana and they had um they brought in their own ships uh they owned an hacienda so they uh were growing some sugar yeah. uh, some of the people who had served as these factors uh, for the South Sea Company, yeah. um, some of them just stayed. They liked Havana. They yeah. married local elite women. And so they were also part of this story of informants and of deep knowledge and the way that the British and Spanish Empire are not just in competition with each other. They're mutually constituting each other. I mean, we think of like 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 people having global lives as something as being only really 20th century. Yeah. Like, but, but it's amazing to think of somebody growing up in, say, Yorkshire and then... Yeah ending up settling in Havana like that yeah. in the 18th century. That's that's something striking about about the stories you tell. So I just want to put us back in Havana during this siege. Tell us about the people there. Mm-hmm. Like what what did people in Havana do? Like did did people leave and yeah. who left? Yeah. Um Havana, and again, I had to do a lot of research to figure out, you know, recreate the world of 18th century Havana because it's just been less it's been written about less. But this is a city that is half people of African descent. It has a large population of free people of color. It has urban slavery, so yeah. uh, a large percentage of enslaved people in the city. And then it has a white elite that is generally more Havana-born than Spain-born. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them have they have residences within the, the city walls of Havana, but they have tobacco farms or cattle ranches in the hinterland. And when this astonishing sight appears on the horizon this massive british expedition surprises them uh one sunday this great great just tell tell us about how big of a surprise it is because this is a great great fact the um it's sunday morning and the governor of havana is given a message from the sentinel at the Moro Castle. He's saying, uh, you need to come look at this. <laughs> there are a lot of British boats on the horizon. And at this point, Sp- um, Havana hasn't even received the official word 
that Spain has entered the Seven Years' War. Oh, because wow. so, things take such a long yeah, time. Yeah, exactly, because of exactly what you were describing of the problem of communication. And also British ships had captured the Spanish ships sending word. So the governor of Havana is slightly annoyed, but he goes out and he gets rowed to the, across the Bay of Havana to the Moro Castle. He goes up with his spyglass and he looks on the horizon and he sees these 230 British ships. And it's so improbable that th- this is, that, you know, they, they're coming for Havana that he says, oh, it just must be a trade convoy passing by. You've ruined my Sunday morning. Keep your eye on it, but I'm just going to go back and go to mass. And within a couple hours, the 230 ships have turned towards the shore and started to approach to land all those men. And church bells are pealing all over Havana. The governor has egg on his face, that's for sure. <laughs> so so we have these different these different social groups. We have yeah. uh, 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 free blacks. We have uh, urban enslaved people. We have uh, uh, Span- people of Spanish descent who were born in Cuba, and then we have an elite who who uh, came from Spain itself. Mm-hmm. And what happens during the siege to these people? Yeah. If, oh, and over fifty over fifty percent of the city is 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 black. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's panic, as yeah. you might imagine, for precisely the reason you mentioned earlier that everybody thought that Havana was impregnable. Yeah. And that such a big force despite all the attempts on the city in the past that they had passed the moment when such a thing would be attempted so there's chaos people are are terrified and right in the very beginning there's a, a massive flight of enslaved people taking advantage of this moment of chaos to get out of the city and, and likely flee their masters oh, wow. many people are fleeing and that includes the uh, religious brotherhood. So um, the convents are are emptying. Nuns are being escorted into the countryside to get them out of the city, away from the cannon fire. Monks uh, and the elites, they're packing up their silver and their valuables. They're putting them on horses. They're getting enslaved people to carry for them for them. And they're rushing as quickly as so they who, can. So who stays in the city? Yeah. Who's defending the city? Yeah. The governor and Spanish officials are there. Yeah. The Spanish naval forces that are there, so the sailors, Spanish sailors, there is a large, there is actually a large percentage of the Spanish fleet that's docked in Havana at this time. It's as much as two fifths of the Spanish navy, which means uh, several thousand Spanish sailors. Unfortunately, yeah, because Havana was a really important port, yeah. uh, it helped to to guide the treasure fleets from Mexico and Peru back. To, to Spain, they all stopped in Havana and got ready for the journey together. So there were a lot of Spanish ships there. Uh, unfortunately, the British surprised them so much they couldn't get the ships out of the harbor and they were not a factor in the fighting. Uh, so you have uh, several thousand Spanish sailors, you have some Spanish soldiers, you have militias. These are white and black militias. And then you have uh, an urban artisan class of free people of color and enslaved people in the city. Um, so many of the elite white people and those that have a home outside of Havana yeah. to go to leave that this city becomes black majority by far yeah. right away. Um, and it becomes more so as the fighting continues because of one fateful decision. The Spanish for some time have been worried about the possibility of their enslaved people being used as a sort of fifth column against them. Yeah. And the British have plotted in other attacks on Spanish territories to offer freedom to the slaves of the enemy if they will come over to the British side. Yeah. So they, they trade the slaves and then they'll offer them freedom. Yeah. To, yeah. There's no strong, clear moral position here. Yeah. It's very utilitarian. So 
the Spanish governor. Did they make the slaves convert to Protestant? No, they're no, not okay. so interested okay. in their souls. <laughs> um, so the Spanish governor worries about this. Yeah. He knows that this is a tactic that has actually been implemented in the past. So he offers freedom to enslaved Africans that belong to Spanish subjects if they'll come into Havana and help defend the city. Oh, wow. So that means thousands of people come from the hinterland and from actually across the whole western part of the island. Yeah. And they come into Havana. Sometimes their owners their owners claim to have selected you know, as many as half of their enslaved people on any rural estate. And sometimes people later reported that I just volunteered and that I came from across the island in the hope of winning their freedom. Um, and so they, uh, the are major population shifts in the city that happen really right away and continue over those six weeks of how, the siege. How unusual is this to have so many free black people fighting in, in, mm-hmm. in, in a battle like this? And how, unu- how did, the, how did this, this, this demographic shift change the city? Yeah. Um, well, the free free blacks in Havana had been organized into militias uh, for over a century at this point. Um, Spain had a strong tradition, colonial tradition of realizing that they needed to co-opt mm. the labor and military power of not of people of African descent and also indigenous peoples. But well, yeah. in, in cities like in, mm-hmm. Euro- in the European cities that I know about, belonging mm-hmm. to a militia was was something you do was cool. Yeah, it was it was a source of pride. Mm-hmm. You would get your weapons. You would parade through the city. Mm-hmm. You would train. It was a way of showing that you had a certain sort of, of status. Right? Yeah, like, exactly. Like it's 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 something you did if you were on the make. Yeah. yeah, the most elite members of Havana's free black population, and they were actually elite. We're in the militia. Yeah. And they, there's a whole package of rights and privileges they received for that service. Some of these people actually invo- owned slaves of their own, oh, which wow. is, shows you the kind of the strange worlds, the surprising world of the 18th century. But uh, enslaved owning enslaved people was crucial to amassing wealth. So there's some pretty elite members of the free black militia. And you have to think of each of these men who is a member of the militia is actually a family. Yeah. Uh, and that the sons would also be in the militia. Uh, their their wives and their daughters would maybe be seamstresses working on those uniforms, or they would their labor would also be supporting uh, the militia. So you have a military tradition of free black people in Havana. Yeah. That helps to explain why so many of them step forward during the siege. The enslaved people, though, to look to try to locate their military tradition, um, you have to look to Africa, and so mm-hmm. you have to remember that. Uh, Many of the enslaved people who arrived via the transatlantic slave trade in Cuba were war captives in oh, West yeah. Africa. So that, so among the population of enslaved people in Cuba, uh, you have people who were born in Cuba and maybe hadn't fought in their lifetime. But you had people who could have had uh, military experience in, say, wars in the Congo that were prevalent in the 18th century, uh, what is now Angola. Um, so you, you had, mil- and you can tell from the, the incredible prowess and the kinds of feats that these enslaved people pulled off capturing British soldiers and sailors by the hair in oh, one wow. instance against someone who was armed, the way that they surprised, um, reconnaissance expeditions of the British, uh, the way they were underarmed. So they had say a machete and they were trying to capture someone with a gun the way they were so successful doing so is another clue that points us toward 
people who had military experience or even military traditions in their families among the enslaved. And I just want to point out something else. Like, like we know about those successes. So how do we know about them? Like, were they mm. publicized? And, and yeah. that probably tells us that everybody was, that there was a certain group of people who were celebrating these feats. Right? Yeah, that's what was so striking when I went to the sources about this. Um, this, is, this event has not been remembered as one that has to do with black people, yeah. basically. And when I started looking at the correspondence between the Spanish commanders and even British uh, soldiers and officers' journals, they spoke quite freely about the role of black people on the front lines. And uh, that was what was so striking. It wasn't actually hard to document the kinds of feats and the kinds of brave acts that uh, free and enslaved people uh, pulled off during the siege. It was all over the sources in a way that really stunned me the first yeah. time I went into the archives. It, so, uh, well, I just, uh, we have about five minutes left. Okay. So I just, I just want to to, to uh, uh, wrap up the story because we're at we're at this moment of the siege yeah. and I know that this, the British win and then they lose. But I, I want to wrap that up quickly because I, I really want to talk with the time that we have remaining about how stories like this get remembered yeah. and kind of our, our, the historian's task in, in, in remembering them in new ways. So let's just, let's just yeah. get that, that plot arc finished. Yeah. Like, so, so we're at this battle, like there's, there's all these exchanges happening. The British take Havana. How, how does that yeah. happen? The crucial decision the British make that makes Havana fall is that they're so desperate to get it and they know they're losing people to yellow fever and it's been stubbornly resistant to their attack. So they do something unprecedented in Caribbean siege warfare. They dig a mine under the Moro Fortress and they blow it up. They blow it up. <laughs> they blow it up. They blow up the front side of it, which enables them to take it. And once they have the Moro Fortress, they can just cannonade the city and the city surrender shortly after. Oh, wow. Um, and then they're able to take over all the ships in the bay and take over the city. And they occupy it for a year uh, until the end of the war. I don't want my my reason. Part of my research right now is on the gun, global gunpowder trade, uh, and the British have uh, uh, snatched up the uh, uh, saltpeter fields of Bihar uh -huh. in India. They have seventy percent of the world's saltpeter at this point. And one of the things that 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 really characterizes British warfare is they have a lot of gunpowder. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, and this showed like this <laughs> yeah. is this shows what you can do. So so the British blow up the Moro, they're able to take the city and then and then it then it ends. Um but I so something that especially with the conclusion uh, conclusion of your book, something struck me about what historians do that I hadn't really thought of. The story that you're telling hasn't been remembered in the way that you're telling it. And I just want okay, with, with we have like two minutes left. So, 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 so how do you, how do you see the historian's role in like, in re-remembering these mm -hmm. things? That's a really big question. Yeah. If it's too big, I can, no, I can chop okay. it into it. I a really felt piece. that, um, the story had been whitewashed quite literally that yeah. the role of black people in this story had been removed. And that's because we tell history in national boxes, sometimes in t imperial boxes. And it's for a particular reason to shape a certain sense of meaning and belonging and this story was not served well by Cuban national boxes. There was a particular story to be told there about a defense of patria, but, but not necessarily that race played a part. Um, 
So I felt that Atlantic history was a really crucial framework to bust open imperial boxes, to yeah. bust open national histories, and to just look at all the people that converged there and tell the story of those people. And those people in the majority, the people about who I thought this story was about, this defense of Havana and what happened afterwards, were people of African descent. So yeah. I wanted to make sure that all these imperial narratives collided in Havana, but people of African descent were at the center. They were the protagonists of this battle. They shaped this history and what happened afterwards. Yeah, and just so like when you look at these, if you look at the siege of Havana from a British history, history standpoint, like me, you might skim over it because mm -hmm. status quo antebellum. Right. If you look at it from a Cuban history perspective, you might look at other sorts of of, of, of military victories, but for your, your, your move is to say, let's look at this for, from the perspective of the Atlantic world, all yeah. these different peoples coming together and, and moving around. And if all those people, then a new kind of, then, then, then black people get a key role in this, in this struggle. I, and one of my narrative techniques to do so was to break open a point of view and to have multiple threads mm. coming into and out of the events in Havana. So there's the kind of, British imperial machinations thread and all the actors involved in that narrative line. There's the thread of those in Havana living in this world that's mixing British and Spanish subjects, Africans, African descended peoples. Um, and then I tried to follow out, I tried to really, I followed out the kind of reverberations of this event and how it affected Spanish imperial policies, their interest in get breaking into the slave trade later. And then how was this event remembered? by the families of those black veterans, as many as 50 years later. Um, I was able to link the events in Havana during the Seven Years' War to uh, a slave rebellion led by uh, a, a member of one of the free black militias in Havana 50 years later. And he explicitly invoked his memory of the, the proud service of black soldiers during the siege of Havana during his slave rebellion and his uh, his trial testimony talks about it 50 years later. That's I mean, one of the amazing things about this book is that you do what we call long durée history. Mm -hmm. Like thing you you look at at Havana from a really long temporal lens. But usually when people do long durée history, yeah. there's no people. Yeah. And and you have names, you have yeah. people, you have black people with names who do things. Yeah. It's it's an amazing yeah. book. I but unfortunately you have to yeah. uh, 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 finish up because your your time is very precious. I would like to thank you so much for 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 coming on. This has been fantastic. Um and thank you to the listeners. Thanks to everybody who shares us on social media, to uh, Duncan Barton who did our image, and to Jonathan Lear who did our music. Thank you again. You can get The Siege of Havana, uh, uh, The Occupation of Havana, in bookstores everywhere? <laughs> everywhere. Amazon. Everywhere. Amazon. one big bookstore. The, the, the yeah. big bookstore. And, <laughs> and, and go to Elena Schneid on Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter. Thank you, Brennan. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you.